0: What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another episode of Sovereign Mindset. My name is Mike Ruiz, and today I spoke with Ryan Summers. Ryan, I've been following him now for quite some time on Twitter, and I really enjoy his tweets, I enjoy his writing, and I really like what he has to say. So I asked him to come on for a discussion, and it turned out to be a great, great conversation. The first half an hour, we talk about Ryan's background, we talk about his life with autism, and how he got into writing and his current project and around the 30 minute mark we get into life in canada and the trucker protest we talk about what it's like to live in clown world how incentives matter and how they dictate our actions Um, we also talk about how the incentive structure is currently broken and how bitcoin could be a possible solution and just throughout the conversation we get into various thoughts on the macro and political spectrum So I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you guys do too. With that said, let's get right into it. All right. Boom. Welcome Ryan Summers to the podcast. Um, Ryan, dude, um, you want to introduce yourself and anything you want to say, as little as you want to say, as much as you want to say.
1: Yeah. Well, first off, uh, um, Mike, I just want to thank you for having me. Um, I'm excited to chat with you. Um, I was already telling you that, you know, you've one of my favorite people to follow on twitter lots of great content you're putting out lots of uh really interesting ideas and philosophies that i that i'm like learning about and getting into and i and i appreciate that um but yeah for me like i live in in canada i currently live in a small town called bayfield which is um on lake huron in canada little town i live in a little you know little cottage in the woods um but i i've Kind of got a long history of being all over the place. I spent a decade in Toronto. I lived in Montreal, Vancouver, uh, a few other places. I've I've, uh, done a lot of different things. I was uh, involved in the music industry a lot at a younger age, in my teens and 20s. I started uh, a hip hop magazine when I was like 18 or 19 that uh, I published for a few years that got some international recognition, which was pretty cool. Uh, I then ended up working in the music industry. I worked for, I was the first hip hop editor at Vice Magazine back in the day and, and did a lot of content with them. Uh, I went into the music industry as an A&R guy at Universal Music for a, a short period of time. Found out that the big giant corporate uh, environment wasn't for me. Um, and then, yeah, I did music journalism, wrote for a bunch of magazines, and then I got into um in between different gigs, I would always kind of float back into bartending. I love bartending. I was really got really into the craft beer scene really early, so that was a big part of my life. So I ended up working in craft beer at one point. I ended up out in BC as the territory manager for a large craft beer importer. So I was basically the running the whole province out of my kitchen, which was you know my kitchen table, and that was pretty fun. Did that for several years, uh, and then recently in the last couple of years, I. Um, After kind of lifelong working on figuring out different things, I discovered um, that I am autistic. So I had a lot of different issues throughout my life, uh, you know, anxiety, depression, things like that, and just kind of like feeling disconnected from the world in a lot of ways. So I went through this process um, two years ago, started the process two years ago uh, of uh, figuring all that out, ended up with a, a, a diagnosis of level one autism and ADHD as well, um, with a few other things thrown in there, (laughs) kind of a fun mixed bag of autistic autistic spectrum disorders. Uh, And then these days, I've just kind of landed in this small little cabin in the woods, and I'm living a a quieter life than the whole big sort of uh, beer and music industries that I was involved in, and currently writing a book. I was hired last year to um, write an autobiography for somebody, and I'm working on that right now, which is... I'm within weeks of finishing, which I'm really excited about. And I plan to keep going in that direction, just doing lots of writing. Um, And then also, uh, you know, uh, I've always been a very aware and conscious person and very skeptical of what's going on in the world. So I think in our current days, uh, that has taken over a lot of my bandwidth, focusing on um, all of the, you know, policies around a certain uh, virus that, is apparently going around the world that I have yet to see, but <laughs> and, then, uh, and then and then anyway, beyond that, man, I'm just I'm really I've always been a deeply spiritual person. I've always I've had a lifelong uh, meditation practice, uh, and I and I've been getting really deep into that. I just came off a ten day silent retreat, which was amazing.
0: Wow, I want to hear more about that.
1: Yeah, and I and I'm just kind of really focused there. I think in this in this time we're in right now in the world, there's a lot of stress. A lot of people are feeling a lot of anxiety a lot of pressure uh there's a lot of uh emotions fear obviously i know you know anyone who pays attention to human psychology knows that fear is something that can be manipulated and turned into uh, anger and hatred i think there's a lot of that floating around a lot of really good people are not acting like good people currently with a lot of judgment and so i'm trying to like i was feeling a lot of that anxiety as well And I was feeling like I needed to just really deepen my spiritual practice. I know you're a very spiritual guy, so I'm interested to talk to you about that stuff as well. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of where I am here. And and then also, I think one of the reasons I discovered you is last year, 2020, through uh, an acquaintance of mine, he started hipping me to uh, Bitcoin. And I had heard about it for years, never really looked into it. I mean, I think once about 10 years ago, I sat down on my laptop and I tried to figure out how to buy Bitcoin. I failed because I just didn't know how to do it. I'm kicking myself that I didn't stick it out a little longer because had yeah. I bought Bitcoin 10 years ago, my life would be a little different right now. That being said, I'm happy where I am. I'm happy I'm, I'm here now in the Bitcoin space and, and discovering uh, people like yourself and other people that I've been following on on Twitter specifically, and learning a lot about that world, and and for the first time in my life, uh, I can see um, a, uh, a pathway for my daughter's future.
0: Mm. So,
1: for me getting into Bitcoin is not even—it's partially not about you, huh? it's partially about me, but it's it's ninety nine percent about my daughter's future. So, I I mean, money I would be putting into like a savings account for her right now is is. I'm not putting it in a savings account for her, so
0: wow, that's an incredible background and I didn't, I didn't uh, realize it's so like um diverse and eclectic that's uh it's really interesting <laughs> there's so much stuff
1: yeah be- <laughs> I've kind of bounced around a lot like I've sort of just been a bit of a nomad and a bit of a guy that I just kind of like get itchy feet and I start walking and then I end up somewhere and I end up falling into something interesting and that's kind of the way I've always lived it's not been a stable life, but it's been I've got a lot of. I feel like I have, I've always been more about collecting experiences and stories and relationships and character building (laughs) than I have been about necessarily collecting um, like a a house in the suburbs and
0: cars
1: and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I've been that way as well. Uh, A little bit of both, a mix of both. But now I have definitely um, tapped into more of a character building phase of my life um, going back in my formative, you know, plugging up those holes that I didn't, uh, develop in my formative years. And, yes. uh, it's, it's been a fun journey, but, uh, I want to get into, um, your autism diagnosis if we can, yeah. cause I don't know much about it. And, um, I'm curious if you could, uh, kind of explain to me what it is and, and how, how that has affected your life or, um, yeah, I know you got an autism, autism podcast as well. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I, I have a podcast called The Life Autistic,
0: uh-huh. with
1: Ryan Summers, and so, um, I'll go back about maybe two years, right around the start of, of the whole, uh, you know, pandemic, and my partner and I had been having, you know, some significant issues for, uh, well, our entire relationship, and uh, well, for a couple of years, you know, this is the mother of my child. And I just kind of got to this phase of my life. I had always had questions. I always knew I was different. I mean, a lot of autistic people describe it as feeling like you're an alien here on earth. Like you just feel like you're not from here. I always had that feeling. I'm like, I just don't really get how people relate to each other, how they interact. Like conversations are awkward for me. There's, a, there's like a, this sort of subconscious social understanding that everyone seems to have that I don't have. So I've heard that described, I I described it like that, too. It's like it's like being an alien, like you're just dropped into Earth. You look like everyone else, but you don't really understand what's happening or like how people communicate. Um, I had from a very young age, a lot of social issues like I just got overwhelmed. Socially, was happier being alone a lot of the time. Very creative. I'm I'm a very active imagination. I was talented artistically. I could write. I could draw you know, I had music talent, all that stuff. Oh, I forgot to mention in my past somewhere, I, there was a time in there for a few years where I was in a rap group and put out a couple of CDs and <laughs> but anyway, it doesn't matter. But well, uh, so, so I always had this feeling my whole life. And I also had uh, several instances of autistic burnout, which I think also led to me being this nomad and jumping around so much because I would get into a, a, a position or like a job or a career or a play and then I would just go full on and just dive in and get into it. And then I would just have like a burnout phase uh, where I would just like, it's like my brain just short circuited and then I just couldn't function. And I would have to take a break and retreat and like recover from that. Of course, experiencing all that in my life without knowing I was autistic, I didn't know what it was. So I had all these, I was like, do I, I have to, depression i have anxiety like am i bipolar do i have chronic fatigue like what do i i don't
0: understand ryan can can i can i just uh pause you right there and ask a little bit what is autism like from a physiological standpoint or a psychological standpoint like how do you how does it yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) because i I don't know it's like first time i'm learning about autism you hear it you hear it talked about uh, a lot but i don't really specifically know what it is
1: okay gotcha so there's um so autism is categorized it's asd which is autism spectrum disorder so it's categorized as a neurological disorder Mm -hmm. um i like to think of it as a difference not a disorder i think Mm -hmm. you know um i don't think there's anything wrong with me i just think i'm different than but the 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 the, cat there are different traits and aspects of it one is the social aspect people And again, there's a bunch of different traits and they can all be sort of at different levels. So you get some people which are like severely autistic and others which are like me that, you know, they would have called like high functioning autism or whatever. Like I can still go to the store. I can talk to people. um, But, I'm, you know, whereas some severely autistic people are nonverbal. They can't. They need 24-7 care. But it's a neurological disorder. There's there's a lot of it has to do with sensory processing. So that's why you'll see a lot of people with really uh, severe autism that are just kind of like this. Like they just can't handle if a noise happens or they get overloaded sensorily. So I have that, but on a lesser scale. So there's a sensory issue. There's a social interaction issue. Like there's this um, not being able to uh, like communication difficulties. So a lot of people with autism have difficulty understanding Facial expression, body language, tone of voice, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. We don't read that properly. Uh, We also tend to take language literally. So a lot of times when you speak to people and they kind of – people beat around the bush or you're kind of like when they talk and they don't really say what they mean but everyone kind of knows how to read between the lines and understand what they're saying – Whereas an autistic person is just sitting there going, I don't know what the hell you guys are talking oh, about. So,
0: so the little social nuances, you don't really. Um,
1: yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of that. Like, I mean, I don't know. You know, you hear people say like, you know, 75% of communication is nonverbal. So, okay. That's 75%. It's like, I'm dyslexic. I can't read it. So yes, yeah. if I'm talking to you. Like this happens to me all the time. I'll be talking to somebody and then their facial expression or their tone of voice or their body language will change slightly. But I don't know what it means. So to me, it's really confusing. Mm-hmm. Whereas most people just pick up those subtleties no problem. They process them. But for me, like if I'm talking to you, we're hanging out. And then suddenly your facial expression changes. Like I have to stop and ask you. Go, hey, man, your your expression just changed. Like what does that mean?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I got you, you know?
1: got you. And it might not mean anything or it might mean something. But it might be a subtle thing that most people would pick up on. But I have to ask you to explain it. So so I'm getting and it, well, this has been a kind of an interesting thing for me being empowered in the last couple of years, learning about this, getting my diagnosis, understanding, because now I feel empowered to to do that, to say, to stop someone to go, hey, explain what's going on. Your body language changed. What does that mean? Um, gotcha.
0: So it's it's uh, giving you a framework to kind of understand your own psyche. of in, yeah. in ways, right. Yeah. Uh,
1: And a lot of autistic people have struggled with certain things like uh, um, eye contact is one of them. Like I had to consciously teach myself how to do eye contact with people because I'm not comfortable with it. I don't like looking. I don't like eye contact, which which is kind of a unfortunately a bad trait in our society because our society values eye contact. And we teach people, oh, if someone doesn't look you in the eye, they're shady. They're dishonest. They're, you know, but I, when I was a kid, I didn't look people in the eye because I'm autistic, but nobody knew that. So I I had often instances of people saying to me when I was younger, like, or people like friends of mine, like their parents would say to their, their kids, like, Oh, I don't want you hanging out with that Ryan guy. Like, I don't trust him. He doesn't look us in the eye. Like he's, they thought I was a shady kid. I have Mm -hmm. a heart of gold, man. Like I'm like Mm -hmm. the most loving, honest person with like, Integrity is like the most important trait to me and I've always been that way, but it's just funny, but you get misjudged. So, I mean, that happens and it's Mm -hmm. fine. So anyway, I don't know if like, that's some of the traits with autism. I experienced a lot of those in my life, but didn't know. Another big one is autistic overwhelm. Like when you're out in the world, because these interactions with people are so much more difficult, they require so much more energy that like, when you like I would come home, I'd have a job and I'd come home on Friday and I would have no life the entire weekend. I would spend the entire weekend on the couch because I was zapped of all my energy from the work week because it just takes so much more energy for an autistic person to interact with everyone else and 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 do it. I mean, I remember one time I, I was working at a, a record company as an a and guy and the being in the office during the day just was. I hated it. I hated everything about it. I hate the people, the noise, and but I had to be in the office. You had to be there. So I would go in the office and I would get nothing done all day. And then I would wait till everyone left at like 6 o'clock, and then I would stay till midnight and I'd get like three days worth of shit done in, wow. five, in five hours, going around. Oh. So, so nowadays that I know how my brain works, like I, I wasn't empowered back then to understand where I could have talked to my boss and went, like, "Hey, man, like, can we work something out?" Because I'm, so I ended up like burning out of that job. I couldn't handle it. But gotcha. now I could talk to them and go, "Hey, like, this is what I need to to make this work for me." And I'll like I'll do a good job. Like I, in that job I was in, like I loved it and I I was great at it. But I just um, my brain fizzled out. So.
0: Well, cool. Well. um it to me it sounds like um you know it's it it sounds like a good thing that you've you've tapped into at least what it is that uh you were just kind of i guess suffering from to some degree right um not understanding why it is that you were the way you are and uh but i mean i don't know to me when i when i speak to you when i when i conversate with you it, it just seems like yeah you everything everything's normal i mean you seem like a normal person to me so yeah it's interesting it's uh
1: very uh i am i am i'm one of those um you know high functioning uh people that i'm i'm one of the traits of autism too that people experience is what we call masking right so Mm -hmm. masking is when you you uh well you mask you put on a mask of a neurotypical person you learn how to you train yourself how to act like a neurotypical person oh interesting so that you could fit into the neurotypical world without standing out because you also you also internalize at a young age when you're autistic that your differences are wrong you're told that your differences are wrong so you hide those differences and you learn how to mimic and pretend like you're and you do this all unconsciously. Like you're not aware that you're doing it. At least I wasn't as a child. So mm-hmm. now part of my last couple years also with with discovering I'm autistic. Like I, I was suspicious about being autistic for a, like a, over a decade. I remember reading a couple articles by people that were autistic and just going, man, like this.
0: <laughs> sounds like, like what I got.
1: <laughs> I could have written this. It sounds exactly like what my life is like. So, So you're not going to see necessarily – Like my autism on full display because I have also just internalized this masking. Gotcha. uh, I mean, but at some point, I mean, I could start rocking. Like, I don't know. Like, it just could happen. I used to stop myself from doing that. Uh, Now I just let myself do it if it happens. Um, I sometimes like my hands will move, shit like that. I'm kind of like unconsciously when I'm talking to somebody else, it's like my brain just puts that, like, puts a clamp on that stuff. But when I'm home alone, it's like you know interesting. So I'll,
0: I'll, <laughs> I want to get into you. I, I, I
1: don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this show.
0: Oh, yeah, it's all good, bro. Um, dude, so I, I came across you on Twitter. Your tweets are um are great. I love them. They're like to the point and they hit home. And so yeah, I come to find out you're a writer as well. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. How'd you get into writing and and what kind of book are you writing right now? curious
1: yeah so i got into writing i mean from a very young age like i just um i'm i've just always been a very creative person so like any creative expression like i've i can, I could drawing painting music songwriting writing uh you know everything like i'm just into acting i've done some acting like i just anything creative i'm, I'm super into so i started writing in high school I got really into writing when I fell in love with hip hop. I started trying to write rhymes. I mean, that was my thing back in like, you know, 89, 90, 91, like that era. So in high school, I had a rap group and it was me and two other guys were MCs. And then we had a DJ. And so that was super fun. We'd get together, we'd write songs, we'd perform, we'd do talent shows. And then uh, I loved it because it was an outlet. And then the group, I was the youngest guy in the group, and the, the other two MCs were uh, a year or two older than me in high school. So they graduated before me, and they were gone. And then I was like, "Oh man, I have no outlet." So I started a magazine. I was really in love with hip hop. It was this is going back to like the mid nineties. Now there was the whole I don't know if you're into hip hop very much. Or, yeah. Or, but
0: absolutely. in the mid
1: nineties, um, how old are you? Can I ask?
0: Yeah, I'm thirty nine.
1: Okay, so you're a little younger than me. I'm forty five, but. You know, you're not that much younger, like, but in the mid nineties, there was this really big movement of like indie hip hop, like all these awesome artists coming out, this creative explosion. And I just, I started a magazine. I was like, I'm going to start this hip hop magazine. Um, there was a, a rapper named divine styler who was like kind of around in the late eighties, early nineties. He was affiliated with ice T and house of pain. Like he was down with all those guys uh he had put out these two amazing albums and then disappeared so i started i named my magazine after him i called it in search of divine styler i started this underground hip-hop magazine and that i just loved writing then because i loved having a voice being able to write about what i wanted to and then publish it out into the world and that kind of led to uh writing for other magazines because then um i started pitching stories to other music magazines hip-hop magazines and then I met the guys from Vice who were in Montreal at the time and uh, through some mutual friends. And then we I, I ended up getting hired by them to write the hip hop column and and then do a feature. So I was basically the, the hip hop editor. I would do a column every, every issue and then one feature story, every issue on a different hip hop artist. So that was great because I just had free reign. I could interview whoever I wanted, write about whoever I wanted. And I loved that, you know, this there'd be like a hundred thousand copies of this magazine going out there that people could read my column like it was just that felt really fun to me and it felt good that I could use my column to uh say what I wanted and 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 talk about artists that I loved and and help them get shine too like I really loved that so so writing has just been something I've always loved uh I took a I took a break from it for a long time you know like I was working in the beer industry for a while and then I had a small child and You know, anyone with kids knows like the first few years of your kid's life, you're not doing much else, you know? But so I just, what's what's,
0: that? What's, uh, so what are you into now? Like, what are you, what are you writing about now? And what's your book about?
1: Yeah. So I just, um, last year I decided I wanted to get back into writing and it's funny, man. On January 1st, last year, I wrote down on my, I was doing my list for the year. And the sure. very I finished the list and then i walked away from it and then i came back to it and, th- and on the very bottom of it i wrote somebody will hire me to write a book this year nice and then like a few months later this guy that i've known for a while who's in the music business he's a he was a, a producer and a dj and and uh and then started two different companies as a successful entrepreneur he texted me one day he said hey dude you still or, no, we were, sorry, we were talking one day and he's like, what are you doing these days? And I said, well, I, I want to get back into writing and I want to, I want to do a book. I want to start writing biographies for people. I think that I'm really interested in humans and their stories. So anyway, I did, it was just a casual conversation to catch up. So like six months later, he texts me back. He texts me. He's like, Hey dude, like, are you still want to write books? And I'm like, absolutely. And he's like, okay, I got an idea. So, so I'm not, I can't say who it is yet. Cause we're, we're still in the process, but so he hired me to write a, Uh, a biography he's a really interesting guy he was a a dj and a music producer in california toured the world worked with a lot of big name artists and then he started uh a media company they do like music for film and television and podcasts and now he's got like a whole staff and just and, and he's a really good guy like he's a good person and his story is super inspiring because he's this like guy that he should have quit about 20 times you know, like his career was just—he just kept getting knocked down, and he just refused to give up. i am crying. cry—I'm like, so we've been doing this book, we've been working on it, doing Zoom calls, and I'm transcribing and working on the book, and I'm like crying as I'm writing it because his story's so good. So wow. I can't. So, so that's really great. I'm, I'm doing that. I'm getting close to getting that done, and and now I'm just like, okay, like this is what I want to do, is just, is write, write books, write biographies. I mean, I'm. Maybe it's part of my autism, but I've just—I'm always so fascinated by humans and the amazing things we can do. And like, most of the books I read are autobiographies because I just want to hear people's stories. I think that's why I love podcasts too, right? Especially these kind of long-form ones because I Mm -hmm. just—I love hearing about people and like how they accomplish what they accomplish.
0: Now, now you're writing. Yeah. So I agree. It's, it's been fun podcasting for me, getting to uh, speak to other people, learn their stories. For instance, what we're doing right now is yeah. uh, super interesting, you know, you get a perspective, I mean, with modern technology, it's giving us so many opportunities to really like learn about each other and um, yeah, and l- learn from each other. Right. That synergistic effect can really yeah. um, create, uh, it can, it can create such an advantage in your life uh, when yeah. when you can tap into people specifically who are doing what you're doing or who are where you are want to be at. So uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. But your tweets um so you've been right. What do you what do you think about Twitter? Is Twitter writing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Twitter. Because- I
1: love Twitter because I mean I just. You know, I mean, you, you, you probably experienced this. Like you, you start writing a tweet and you go past the thing and you're in the red. Yep. And then you're like, okay, how can I make, I got to fit this. So it's a challenge for writing because you got to go, how can I take this idea that I want to express and share and shrink it in a way? And I find that makes you a better writer because I, you look at it because they always say in writing, like take out everything that doesn't need to be there. Like every exactly. single sentence you should make as short as possible just get to the point. So I think Twitter is a great exercise for that. And I've just been kind of getting heavily back into Twitter in the last six months or so. I, I had a Twitter account for years. I didn't really use it, mm-hmm. uh, but I think when I started researching Bitcoin, I got really, really onto Twitter. Cause that's kind of where, you know, Bitcoin that's what did. happens. That's what happens. And then I started getting into with all this other shit in the world. You start expressing. I, yeah, I think, I think Twitter is totally writing. And I think, uh, I when you spend more time crafting tweets you you I think it does improve your abilities as a writer. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I
0: noticed too. Um I, you know, I've been making a conscious effort to become a better writer. Uh took a couple courses um you know and what I really like about Twitter is exactly what you're talking about, it's the constraint where uh the creativity happens because you have to yeah. condense down this you know maybe complicated idea into you know 240 characters and yes. so you really have to focus on the meaning of each word that you're using That's and um, yeah it's been it's been a fun endeavor for me over the past couple of years um, getting more active on Twitter and speaking more about what's happening in the world because it's also one of those things where it's also an outlet and yeah. the reach and it, you know you can condense exactly what's happening in the world in a short tweet and it can go viral and that could have more of an impact than any long form writing that you've kind of done. So at least in this time for me, it's been one of those endeavors where I'm like, I think I'm having more of an impact writing in this short form on Twitter versus like kind of writing out long form. They both have their, um, I think they both have their place, but, uh, as of right now, getting the memes going, you know, they, they kind of say the memes will save the world kind of thing like that. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> so it's too. been fun. I, I love your tweets. I love reading what you write on there as well. And so kind of yes. want to get into that. Um, what's life been like in Canada?
1: Um, it's weird, man.
0: Yeah. It's so are you, so in, in the small town that you're at, are you affected by a lot of these restrictions? Has a town kind of ab- absorbed, um, and integrated these uh kind of mandates and restrictions into everyday life
1: yeah yeah i'm affected i mean i i i'm i mean i'm i'm probably less affected than i would be if i lived in the city Mm -hmm. because and i'm also less affected because of my personality because i don't give a shit (laughs) you know what i mean like i'm just i'm kind of like all right you know uh i and, and and hey i can't go to a pub i can't go to a restaurant i can't go to the movies. I'm like, I don't give a flying about any of those things, to be honest with you. You know what I mean? Like I quit mm-hmm. drinking a year and a half ago. I don't care about about going out to eat. I don't need to go spend a hundred bucks on a meal at a restaurant. I, I can go spend fifteen bucks on a steak and eat that at home and drink a glass mm-hmm. of water. I'm good. Like so my lifestyle has changed a lot. So but I mean I still yeah, you still see it. You still uh, I don't wear, do the mask thing anymore. I go to the grocery store. I get some dirty looks, whatever. But people where I live is a lot of older demographic. Uh-huh. retirement area. So, they're I mean, and they're fully, fully bought on to the whole narrative, right? Wow. Which is crazy. And then, I mean, being in Canada, uh, what I'm seeing is, I mean, I'm sure what a lot of us are seeing in a lot of other places, the whole kind of. The whole kind of like leftist woke kind of movement of the last several years. I mean, this is their moment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is their moment to virtue signal and prove their loyalty to the narrative and to progress and to to virtue signaling how good people they are, while at the same time like uh being judgmental and condescending to people who think differently than they do. Um but Canada's scary right now, man. Canada is scary. Like, I grew up in what I always thought was a free country. We have this experiment in Canada where we're sort of let's combine, uh, let's combine uh, freedom with with a little bit of socialism and see how that works with, you know, socialized medicine and all this stuff. And it's kind of this trade off where you go, okay, well, if I get cancer, I don't want to sell my house. So that's good. We pay for that in taxes. But at the same time, we still have, or at least we did the same sort of freedoms that the rest of the free world has. So but currently I'm in a country now where the like if I wanted to leave Canada I have to sneak out of the country. I mean that's insane to me. I never would have thought that would ever be possible. Uh there are people that um
0: Ryan I can I can yeah, I um I'm
1: like, I'm just getting like, oh shit! What? <laughs> <It's crazy. laughs> I don't
0: want to bring you down, brother. No, no, but,
1: no. Um, I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm never, I'm not down. I'm just like, oh my god, you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know it's been tough for everyone though. It's been, it's been, and yeah. we've all had to adjust our lives in in, in some manner or some capacity um, yeah. to really like deal with clown world right now. And yeah. um, sometimes I was just thinking about it, and I was uh, taking a break and just kind of disconnected from everything, and kind of took an observer. A role and kind of replayed the last two years and the stuff I've had to deal with. And I was just like, holy cow, man, like things have really gone 180 for a lot of people. And I'm in Florida, and it's still, you know, it's like literal clown world, people walking around with masks outside, people in the ocean with masks. And so, you know, all of that stuff, the degree to which our society has changed is, is sometimes. You know, you really have to step back and be like, "Wow, you know," and and kind of process it because it is it is such a drastic effect. It's like someone just yeah. dropped you off, like you you know, yeah. like you described. Someone just dropped you off, like we're aliens almost, right? Like it's like, yeah. uh, like you were talking about with autism. It's like, holy cow, yeah. I just got dropped off in the middle of this. Like w- I'm a stranger in a strange land right now, and yeah. um, so yeah. So, Go ahead.
1: No, I was just gonna say, like, I agree with you, and there's this there's this sort of insanity to it where, you know, like when you see those kind of movies where there's like somebody knows what's going on and they're trying to explain it to everyone else and everyone else is just ignoring them. And they're like, Oh, that's crazy. And the person in the movie and you're watching that movie and you're like feeling that frustration. It's like, we're in that, we're in that movie where you can show and people are so beyond, like, I don't understand how people just like abandon their ability for critical thought, for reason, for for rationality. They the people saying trust the science are religious about COVID. Like they're not trust they're not even looking at the science. And you can explain to something all day, like, you know, you can have these conversations, you can show people data, you can show them information, you can and they just, well, that's not what I've been told to believe. So it therefore so it's really frustrating because you just feel like you're taking crazy pills because you're yeah, walking around Yeah, Well, like every, every like you can see so clearly what's happening, but all these people are just walking around like, okay, you know,
0: yep. It's a trip, um, really a trip. And that's, so that's been my, uh, biggest gripe you know i put out a tweet yesterday basically describing like the lengths that the canadian government is going to propagandize the people where it's blatantly lying and demonizing their own citizens uh to now using you know state sponsored violence against like the peaceful protesters and and Mm -hmm. truckers and what they have planned and you know the the i want to talk about the trade-off a little bit that you're describing and you know there's always this um this trap with socialism right and it's like hey yeah we'll give you all of this stuff for free you just have to relinquish control and your freedoms to big daddy government right and we'll take care of it don't worry you can trust us we'll take care of everything of course that whole um deal uh, that the incentives aren't aligned right the government's incentives aren't to take care of you once that system is in place. It's to to line their line their own pockets yeah. and then further their power. And so, you know, for Can- Canadians and the uh, interactions I've had with them, it's always like they've put government at the top of the pedestal, right? Yeah. That it is now their God and yes. don't worry, big daddy government is going to. And so they can't recognize when the government has gone rogue uh, because yeah. they're not, They're not led by principles, right? Like principles of freedom, individual liberty, stuff like that. They're led by uh, the government. The government is what dictates what's right and wrong for them. And now it's gone completely rogue. It's gone completely totalitarian and fascist. And yet this is kind of what you were talking about earlier, um, where good people are like have gone bad. And it's like, whoa, how do we get them back? So, yeah.
1: it's it's insane, man, and and it's insane to see, you know, and like you said, this whole the way the media has been playing this trucker protest is, I mean, it it's so exposed. You see, I've, I I follow it closely as you know, and and you see the protest. It's like there's white people there, black people there, uh you know, native Aboriginal Canadians there. We have a huge Sikh population in Canada and there's a huge uh, portion of truckers that are Sikhs. There's a huge Sikh population at this protest families like mother, dad, mom, and kids in the cab of the truck. They're there. Uh, There's been no, no, no talk at all in this whole protest about hate or anything or racism. It, It doesn't exist. There was one guy with a, one guy in the first day with a, a, a Confederate flag. Who was the only person there wearing a? He had a ski mask on and goggles, and he was the only person there with a face covering on. And it was obvious that it was like either a troll or a plant. And you there's video footage of the people, the protest, saying to this person like you need to go. You're not welcome here. And then you get the one guy with a Nazi flag that. You know, it just so happens Trudeau's personal photographer happens to show up right next to this guy with a brand new Nazi flag right out of the package still with the creases in it. It's mm-hmm. up for two minutes to get a photo and then it's gone. And then I, I have a friend of mine who was at the protest and he was there when there was a, someone, there's a photo went around in all the media with someone holding up a Trump sign, right?
0: Mm-hmm. My friend
1: was right beside it when it happened. And he said, the camera crews were there. This person walked up, unrolled the Trump sign in front of the cameras posed for a moment and then rolled it up and disappeared again. So it's yeah. like, you just go, man, you know, well, that's and- the t-
0: that's the tactics they use. Right. And it's, yeah. it's all about keeping the people divided. Yeah. And, you know, it looks like, you know, they're doing it through ideological and political lines. Um, and as long as people buy into that divide and conquer tactic, it's, it, it can work. Right. Because it, it confirms their bias. They're like, yeah. You know, and so it's the truckers are out there and they're protesting and they're fighting everyone's freedom. Right. Not just their own. And, you know, if people picked up on this in Canada and, you know, those that were had some type of inclination that things were wrong, um, it could turn into a powerful movement and a powerful force for change. So how do we how do we let's demonize them, let's stigmatize them and let's create this, you know, let's create this propaganda around the fact that these are actual bad people, (laughs) you know, like, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, it's just a, it's just a government tactic that they use. And unfortunately, uh, it seems that some people continuously fall for it. And um, when, you know, and they don't realize that they're slowly slipping away into tyranny and that that in itself is detrimental for their own health, their own livelihood, their own quality of life and their kids. And here yeah. they are, they're too busy hating on those people that are actually fighting for freedom.
1: It's true. And I think something that you you, you mentioned that I do want to touch on, I think is important. I think that we here in Canada, we've had it so good for so long. And we're, I mean, we're now like two generations back from like World War II and all that, right? Like we've had my generation and my parents' generation that have grown up in this like prosperous, peaceful healthy free country and i think a lot of people have internalized this idea that the fight for freedom is over and that we won and that nothing bad could happen here so you get that when you talk to people and you try to say well hey like you know the government is overreaching and they're acting like dictators and this and that and and then people just go like well that's just a conspiracy like that couldn't happen here like they think these problems that happen in other parts of the world in Eastern Europe or South America or Africa or wherever, they think those problems would never happen here. And you just kind of go, man, the minute you stop thinking it's possible here is the minute that those people in power have the advantage. And I think it was Ronald Reagan had a quote of like, you know, we're only ever one generation away from tyranny. And I think people, we're about to learn a hard lesson in this country, maybe in some parts of the United States too, in Western Europe. I mean, I think we're all, all the Western world right now is going to learn a hard lesson because we've sort of like been lulled into complacency and these people right now, I think there's also this, uh, there's this, this belief that nothing bad could ever happen here. There's this blind faith in government. Canada's government is huge. I mean, something like 60 cents of every tax dollar goes to government bureaucracy here. Like it's insane. Our, our uh, Ottawa, which is where the protest is happening. I mean, it's, I don't know exactly the numbers, but I wouldn't be surprised if its primary industry is government. So like Mm -hmm. most of the people living there complaining work for the government. They haven't experienced the hardship of this too, which is another thing.
0: and that's the other thing about a socialist government, right? It's like the incentives are off. If the government ever goes rogue, you're not going to bite the hand that feeds you, right? If you're no. dependent on the government, it's not like you're going to stand up and cause trouble and fight for your freedoms or support anyone that's uh, out there fighting for freedoms because, hey, how am, how am I going to get paid next week or, or whatever it is? And that's that's what happens when you have a big bloated government, like you were saying.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then in Canada too, like our media, I was just watching a video this morning uh, from Rebel News, and he was talking about we just had an election last fall, and right before the election, Trudeau's Liberal government spent sixty-one or sixty-two million dollars paying uh, uh, money to fifteen hundred different media outlets in Canada. So, and this goes from big to small, from the major newspapers and TV stations right down to like little local. Uh, magazines and newspapers in small towns and they pay this money and, they, and then Trudeau also I mean a couple years back they paid them like 600 million dollars. This was like a bailout to save the media but really what it functions as is uh, um, the liberal party paying for the coverage that they want. Sounds Trudeau, like a bri-
0: sounds like a bribery mechanism.
1: 100% it's a bribe and 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 Trudeau even jokes about this. There's a video that goes circling around. He's at some you know dinner or something and he's like making a joke about it going well we pay them 600 million dollars so we get the kind of headlines we want ha 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 and it's like yeah and then our our main media outlet so cbc in canada which is the biggest which is the canadian broadcasting corporation it's the biggest media outlet in the country it dwarfs all private media that's a completely state controlled media it's completely Mm -hmm. funded by the state owned by the state so and the liberal party which is trudeau's party is the party that um, funds them the most. So if the conservative party in Canada were to get elected in, they would lower the funding for the CBC. So who's going to, who are they going to support? So in all the media, they're going to support the liberal party because that's the one that keeps telling them, we're just going to keep giving you more and more cash.
0: So then, yeah, then it looks like the media then just becomes a propaganda arm for the Absolutely. liberal, Absolutely. for the liberal party in Canada. And it's just this yeah. vicious cycle that, yeah. um, I, it's going to have to play itself out. And yeah. eventually I see it eating itself alive because, you know, that's what happens to all kind of communist socialist uh, governments. They kind of just end up, you know, destroying anything that's valuable just because yeah. the incentive structure is to be as uh, thieving and self-interested as possible. Yeah. And so I guess my question is, what do you see happening Um more on a macro scale on, on, on a longer timeline, like one year out, do you see any, uh,
1: do you have any thoughts on that? I I do. I mean, I, I, it's so hard to try to, you know, it's so hard to try to predict. I mean, I think, I mean, I think we, anyone who's paying attention has, has familiarized themselves with, uh, you know, the W E F and the UN and, and, you know, the 2030 and agenda 21 and all that stuff. So, I mean, we can see all that coming, we can see the the push. I mean, you know, anyone anyone who spends more than five minutes looking into this stuff can can quickly understand that the whole point of the COVID lockdowns and mandates was to introduce the vaccine passport, which is the stepping stone towards the digital ID. The they're already you know they're already talking about uh, the carbon. Uh, carbon credits limiting we can spend uh trudeau's already publicly talked about like putting a limit on uh like distance you're allowed to drive each month for people um stuff like that so i think we're going to see more covid measures we're going to see more folding in of of climate change stuff uh we're going to see that push towards digital id and then eventually digital not eventually but pretty soon i think because they're the, the whole sort of central bank digital currency uh i think you you you, I've seen you tweet about this too, but I think we're also looking at um, a major financial collapse. That uh, I was just listening to another podcast this morning, and there was a guy who was a former BlackRock executive and investor, and he was talking about he's like the entire system is hollow on the inside, it's on the verge of collapse, it's a house of cards, and that COVID gave these governments the opportunity to just hit hit the speed button on the money printers and just start firing up as much money as they can to try to keep the system propped up for a little while longer and and get all this money to all their their corporate buds, you know, but it's all going to collapse. So I think it's, I I don't know, man, I'm, I'm an optimist. Like I don't try to get too paranoid or pessimistic about things, but I think we're looking at some really hard times in the coming years. Um, Or we, unless everybody, unless enough people wake up to hit that tipping point where we just, fucking hang these motherfuckers and we start over and we just like uh you know get get ourselves back to the place where we all go oh my god like look what just almost happened we need to be careful next time i don't know what are your thoughts on that i'm curious to hear what you think
0: yeah so i i definitely think that we're i think that uh we're beyond the point of uh return here and that sure. we're just gonna have to we're just gonna have to face the consequences of uh you know, the fiat money printer for the past hundred years or whatever. And like, yeah. it's, t- it's time that the society paid the piper um, for just becoming disconnected from its principles, its moral, yeah. you know, its values, its morals. Uh, and so it's like one of those things where we're going to feel God's wrath, I think. And yeah. uh, it's, uh, you know, when you look out there like, like yourself, like it, it could be scary, yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's also, there's, there's comfort in just accepting, um, mm-hmm. accepting the worst case scenario and therefore reorienting your life around that to some degree, you know, yeah. like you don't want to, you don't want to go full, uh, doomsday prepper oh, no. um, and, and, and have that consume every aspect of your, your identity. But, yeah. you know, there is, uh, there is a certain you know there is a certain um benefit to just accepting what what's coming down the pike and and, and trying to, yeah. to to prepare for that and yeah. um yeah i think the wef and all these people have made it very clear that they're going to push forward and you know they have apparently all these things planned it's funny because people want to call these conspiracy theories, but it just so happens that everything they actually talk about, you know, it, it's come to fruition, right? They they yeah. literally they literally pre planned a COVID pandemic, right? Just yeah. a few months before COVID actually happened, oh, yeah. and people people can't can't make the connection there as That's to good. this being some type of uh, some part of a larger agenda, and so yeah, yeah I, I you know I've been this is kind of how i've come to be known on twitter and and um is because i talk about this i say hey look this is what they're openly doing uh we can see it happening so you guys better prepare and i know like personally i'm not i'm not prepared for any catastrophe right now if there was a cyber pandemic or if the grid went down or if there was food shortages or all of that stuff you know i'm in the i'm in the i'm in the same boat as many people um but you know, I'm working, I'm working towards that reorienting my life. And this is why I started a podcast called it sovereign mindset, because yeah. we, we do need to tap more into our sovereignty. We need to become more self-sufficient. And if we can't become self-sufficient we have to be reliant on other people or other systems, we should at least be very conscious about it. Right. Because uh, we might not have the opportunity to just go to the store and buy whatever we need pretty soon here in the next few years. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, you know, like, I was talking to Michael Krieger about this yesterday on Twitter. We were having a little exchange, and it was one of those things where the tipping point that you're talking about, where people wake up, it it has to come where people become ashamed as to have ever supporting these policies and waking up that way. Because, I mean, when you look at it, it's just self-destructive ideas and beliefs that people are holding, and that's what's weighing society down. And it's, again, all fueled by... The thing is, they've done a remarkable job. At getting the entire system to confirm those beliefs, right? To reinforce those beliefs, right? If you yeah. are, if you believe this narrative, you are the good guys, and the, pro, uh, yeah. the media reinforces that idea. The government reinforces that idea, and so yeah. it's kind of it's a hard it's a hard um, spiral to get out of. And so we'll see what comes about yeah. it. And That's yeah, great.
1: yeah, I think I mean I think you're right. It's, and I I know. I also, like, I look at, I try to look at everything from a very spiritual point of view. Uh, I know you're a spiritual guy as well. Um, I, I'm not a Christian necessarily, but I, I I I come at things from more of a, like, Buddhist, Taoist kind of vibe. Like, that's, when I was really young, I just started reading that stuff, and I just really connected with me. So, like, I'm deep into that kind of perspective. Um, And also, I mean, I look at what's happening in the world and I know that the things go in cycles and movements happen in cycles and and, and things go from order to chaos to order to chaos to order to chaos and continuously. And that's kind of how it works. So I look at everything and I just go, you know, whatever happens, I will I know that I will stand for whatever principles I have that I, I won't change. and whatever happens to me happens. I mean, you know, I was joking around with a friend the other day, but I was like, I'm not, I am not going to have, I'm not, I have, I'm not going to use a VAX passport. I'm not going to use a digital ID. I'm just not. So it's like if they have to put me in jail or I have to go on the run or hide in the woods, whatever, like that's fine. <laughs> like it's just, it just is what it is. And I'm not saying that makes me a martyr or hero, but it just like, I just think, at a certain point, you have to stop and say, I'm not participating in this because it's fucking evil shit. And the every time one person does that, it invites more people to do it. And I think that's important. But I also just from a, you know, a a very sort of spiritual point of view, it's like, I, I refuse to live in a place of fear about all this. It's like, if they showed up right now and dragged me out of here, I'm like, okay, like, I guess that's just what's happening. Like, I don't love that that's happening, but what am I going to do? Like, you know, I, I I love... I was watching this uh, documentary a, a couple weeks ago. It's about, about these Tibetan lamas, right? That, like, they go off in the caves and they meditate for three years at a stretch and come back down. And it's like... And these guys are just... I mean, those are the kind of inspire me. And there was one guy... They were talking about when China took over Tibet and the, the Tibetans had to flee, the, the monks, right? And there was one monk, he got arrested and was in jail, in prison in China for 30 years. And, you know, beaten and tortured, whatever. He got out and the Dalai Lama was talking about his conversation with this monk that had been in prison for 30 years in China. And he said to him, he said, you know, in your time there, was there violence in jail? And the monk said, yeah, a couple of times. A couple of times, I almost let myself hate my captors, and that was. So he had been like beaten and whatever, but the violence he was talking about was the violence in his own mind. He almost allowed himself to to feel, and that's how I feel. Like I don't even I don't hate anybody. I love everyone, but you know, I'll still defend my my property and I'll defend my family.
0: Sure, you know? sure, and I think uh, I think that's that's what's in our power. And what you said there is I've because of what's happening um i think it has awakened people to search for more meaning right in search for more purpose in their lives because you start to realize a lot of the way we were living or a lot of the way the society was structured was all based on a farce it was based yeah, on fraud right. right and i think this has to do with the money but we'll get into that a little later but yeah, yeah. It, it it has put me on a on a path of um you know it, spiritual enlightenment in a way to yeah. to because you recognize that oh this is something more than what appears on the surface they're actually like they're going for our free will like our free yeah. will is at stake yeah. and so you realize what the stakes are and realize things can get very ugly yeah. and it's going to take a force beyond yourself to really have to deal with a lot of this stuff. And I think that's kind of put me on the search for God. And, um, you know, I've found him, I've found him, and it's completely changed my perspective on life. And it's been a beautiful, it's been a beautiful thing. And, you know, you just realize, Hey man, the other way, the other path, like the juxtaposition right now between both paths, like there's been a clear fork and it's clear to see which way one goes and which way the other goes. And so, yeah, I think for a lot of people, they are reorienting their lives to go down the path of like spiritual enlightenment. And, uh, you know, that reminds me your, your story about the Tibetan monks and all of that reminded me of, one of the books that I read recently, which was a po- had a powerful impact on me, which was *Man's Search for Meaning*, where it was um uh I think it was uh Viktor Frankl. Um, he he basically was in a Nazi concentration camp, and you know <clears throat> he his basic message is that you can the only thing that they can't take from you is your inner resolve, right, yeah. and, and and your connection to God. And if yeah. you let them instill hate in you that's where that's where they've won and like they can torture you they can you you can be imprisoned um they can do all types of horrendous things to you but you know you you have to find a way to maintain your inner resolve and he he does he you know he he says through god you know you could do that through god and um yeah so what i what is what i've kind of come to learn and so yeah it's uh definitely interesting times and uh,
1: You're right. Yeah. Sorry. There's the yeah. Like I think a lot of people are finding finding God, finding their spirituality, finding meaning in this too. You know, because we've I people say we want to go back to the way it was. I don't want to go back to the way it was. Yep. Because I look at my life before this, and and I thought I was living in an awake kind of way. And I look at so many aspects of my life where I was completely asleep and, mm-hmm. this, you know, this has changed my outlook, my, my connections to spirituality, my uh, resolve, my, my commitment to family, to, uh, to truth. Yeah. It's changed, it's changed how I, how I eat. It's changed how I shop. It's changed uh, how I think about money. It's changed everything. So my whole life is different than it was and it's better than it was. So It's
0: it's more, for me, it's uh, one of those, it's more a conscious understanding of, of reality. It's, you're not yeah. just going through the motions. You're not just on the hamster wheel. You're yeah. actually much more aware about the, you're in like how you interact with yeah. the world. And yeah. you know, you, you say, oh, wow, okay. I'm eating this. Why am I eating this? Uh, is it good for me? Is this, it's leading a life with much more intention. And, you know, that intention is connected to, you know, your morality and you kind of, you know, to, um, you know, how Gandhi says, it's like, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. You recognize, Oh, okay. Like I actually have to do that. That's just not some trope or some, some some cliche. I actually have to do that.
1: gotta walk the talk
0: yeah
1: it's chain i mean like the one example is like how i grocery shop has completely changed like i i'm now buying my meat from local farms direct uh there's a couple little small country stores that get like local everything right like local spinach and local eggs and 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 local milk from a local farm instead of the stuff in the carton in the grocery store like so much of that is changing and I go, I take my daughter, she's six now, I take her to these little this little country market store and we get groceries and we talk about where everything came from. We look at the label, we say, oh, this is from this little town, this family owned farm in this little town, 45 minutes that way. We talk about everything. Um, and, and also, I mean, man, once I started really, I mean, I always knew that yeah, all these big corporations kind of own everything and they're kind of shady. Like But it was a sort of abstract idea for me when I started really looking into this stuff during this whole time and actually researching like how these companies are structured, who owns what, what their intentions are. It's like when you realize, oh, like I put out a tweet, I think this morning or yesterday that was saying like, you know, when the company that. When the companies that manufacture your packaged food are the same companies that sell you pharmaceuticals, like, what incentive do they have for those packaged foods to keep you healthy? They don't. They are incentivized to sell you poison. They, they want to keep you in the Goldilocks sweet spot. They don't want to kill you, but they want to keep you alive and keep you sick. So they can then sell you drugs. So they will keep selling you the packaged food that keeps your body ill. And then they can keep selling you the drugs that your doctor is going to prescribe to cure those ailments that the food is giving you when really you could just stop eating the packaged food and your body will heal itself. I mean, it's amazing to me. I watched the video yesterday of a guy who had Crohn's disease and was his doctor said it was incurable and you're going to be on these drugs for the rest of your life. And this guy started researching it started playing with his diet experimenting with different things and then discovered a diet that worked for him and cured himself of Crohn's so now he's no longer a lifelong customer of that pharmaceutical but he had to do that on his own his doctor didn't know that he went back to his doctor and his doctor's like oh that's weird how'd you do that it's like you're my doctor you're supposed to know this shit so it's really shown me also like the the You know, you talk about incentives, it's like the incentives in the medical industry are so lopsided. You look at, I don't know what it's like in the States, and I haven't looked at this up in Canada, but I saw a thing we're saying in Britain, doctors were getting paid an extra $20 per injection for COVID shots. Well, as soon as you give a doctor that incentive, guess what happens? Their entire practice becomes administering COVID shots because the doctor's already getting their salary or whatever they're making. Now you're going to, I can do a hundred shots a day. Like that's an extra two grand I just made or whatever, you know, it's crazy. Yeah.
0: The uh, one of the biggest things that I think I wish people would take away from all of this is incentives matter. And it's like, if you want to understand people's decisions, just look at their incentives. And if we structure a society to incentivize, or if we structure a system to incentivize certain behavior, well, that's the behavior you're going to get. And, you know, what I've noticed is a lot of leftists it's more on wishful thinking it's more based on the idea yeah. like yeah. you know oh of course we want to incentivize doctors to give covid shots because covid shots are are um are good you know yeah. and like that would never and, oh, so,
1: yeah. and
0: yeah, so yeah and <laughs> so you know it's just like or if you incentivize or if the money is incentivizes some so- certain type of behavior it can explain that behavior we don't yeah. have to create this whole other narrative which i feel like a lot of leftists do in order to yeah. explain that behavior it's like uh you know look at all the COVID cases right why you know they're so high and it's like yeah they're high because they're incentivized to report every COVID case exactly. you know like uh even there there any opportunity to even if it involves lying or fraud, they're going to do it. Why? Because they're incentivized to do it. And that explains a lot of what we're seeing is just the incentive structure. So if you want to, yeah. if you want to make sure that society or we're, society is propagating truth, we need to incentivize, we need to create a structure to incentivize cr- truth. But right now what we're doing is we're just incentivizing all this fraud. And I think that happens through the, through the government apparatus. I mean, it's basically yeah. that like, yeah. you know,
1: it, I saw, I saw, I read an article, like, a, I don't know, several weeks ago that I just, it opened my eyes. It was talking about, it was back in the middle ages and there was like, I don't know. It was like the plague or some virus, some, some spreadable thing going around that was making people sick. Maybe it was the plague. I, I, I'll i see if I can find, I don't know. Anyway. But anyway, so back then, and, and this is going back to like the middle ages and the governments at the time Were because the hospitals were getting overwhelmed, the government said, well, we're going to start paying you this much money per case extra to help you out. Well, then you create an incentive for that hospital to have more cases. And what happened is as the uh, the the disease was petering out, people from the hospital were going around and spreading the disease into the population on purpose. Like taking, you know, whatever rags they had wiped people with, and going around and wiping them on doorknobs and things people would touch to spread the disease, to get more people sick back into the hospitals, to get more money. And you look at this whole COVID thing, and you look at the beginning and the, the, uh, the incentives for hospitals, where okay, if you get a COVID, if you have a every COVID diagnosis, we're going to give you this extra money. Every time that person has to get put on a ventilator, you're going to get this extra money. And every time a a COVID patient dies, you're going to get this extra money. You've now just incentivized your healthcare structure to diagnose COVID, to overly treat it, and to...
0: Kill. Kill. Kill the patients. (laughs) I was
1: about to say to let people die, but no, it's to actually to kill them. Uh, And you go, okay, so that incentive, like, yeah... I've been thinking a lot about this too. And I keep, I keep having the same two words in my head all the time lately. It's like psychology and incentives. If you understand human psychology and you understand the incentives, then you can see this thing so clearly. But I think a lot of people just don't, don't look at that. And they just kind of, they're just going through their lives and they're assuming the best of others. And like, that's fine to a point, but man, like you got to understand even people that don't, aren't like, Even people that don't think of them, they're not thinking of themselves as bad people. They're not trying to be evil, but the incentives are set up in such a way to get good people to perform evil actions without even realizing they're doing it.
0: Yeah. And so a lot of the incentives are created through the money system. So I want to get into that a little bit as well. I mean, I think, and that's where the meme comes from, right? You fix the money, you fix the world. Why? Because with fiat currency, you can create all these these misaligned incentives that go to favor um, a small group of people at the expense of society. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of the degradation that we've seen comes comes and stems exactly from that. And so now we have an opportunity to really change things around. Right. And that comes through Bitcoin, through sound money and that that current instantiation is Bitcoin. And so for a lot of people, they've attached a lot of hope and meaning to this because they see it, right? Mm-hmm. They see the only reason that the hospital is incentivized to, you know, commit fraud or to mistreat patients or to even kill them um, or yeah. let them die is because it's all financed through the money printer, right? Through fiat currency. Yeah. And yeah. so you you remove that incentive or you remove that, that component and the incentive goes away. And yes. that ha- that happens through money, which is not in the hands of the state, and that's where Bitcoin comes into play. Yeah. And um, I feel like this is going to be the major battleground here uh, in the next ten years: is is a, a Bitcoin-based world versus a WEF central bank digital currency world. And uh, I think that's where uh, the heart of all of this is going to fall because. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and we'll see what actually happens. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on that.
1: Well, I think, I mean, I think the world just gave us a really great example with this, uh, the GoFundMe with the truckers. And, you know, people spoke up and they spoke up with their wallets and they spoke up to the tune of $10 million to support this protest. And then the pressure from the Canadian government onto that company Lies just going to that company and saying, Oh, these are all extremist Nazis. You can't support Nazis, and then they go fund me. I, I originally they came out and said they were going to seize the money and then give it to charities of their choosing or something, and you're just like, what like this is yeah,
0: imagine mean, like all that money going to Black Lives Matter or some exactly. communist organization let's
1: just, yeah' let's give it to antifa, you know like so we've got, <laughs> we've got these nice truckers having a protest where they've got a bouncy castle, they're sweeping the sidewalks, they're cleaning, they have a barbecue. They're peaceful. They're cleaning all the litter every day. It's like the most the most Canadian peaceful protest you could ever have in the world. And it's being demonized. And then the same government or like Antifa and BLM can like spray paint everything, light it all on fire, beat the shit out of people. That's fine. So, but yeah, so you look at that and you go, well, I see all these people posting going, well, they should just, we should do, fuck GoFundMe, like let's do it in Bitcoin. It's like, I don't think these truckers know how to use Bitcoin yet. So there's a big education that has to happen. And I think when once it gets to the point where it's as easy to use as like a regular app on your phone, where you can just like accept and send it really quick. I mean, there's a learning curve with with all the crypto like Bitcoin stuff. I'm st- I'm only like eight months into learning about it, and I'm still like feel like I know nothing. You know, sure. but, so but I think um, you're right, and I think I think that's like that's where it can go, and that money can be that you know assets and stuff can be. Could be free because if if these people who were donating money to that GoFundMe, I mean, could have just sent it directly to organizers. I mean, I don't know. That's one of the things I think is exciting about about this, this kind of a um, decentralized kind of world that we can get into where it's like, you, it, it, it doesn't have to go through your bank and through your government and through these companies that, that have the power to control you. As we both know, as soon as the government digital currency comes up. Like there's a kill switch on your money. So they can just turn you off when they don't like
0: it's what complete you're doing. control. It's complete control yeah. over every aspect of your life. And then yeah. they want to also introduce like, you know, who knows what kind of biometric meters, uh, you yeah. know, whether it's a chip or, who knows what it is, but now you add the central bank, digital currency in conjunction with yeah. AI technology or just, you know, machine learning or algorithms. Yeah. Um, and then you combine that with, uh, implantable chips. I mean, they control now yeah. every aspect of your life, you and, know, um, uh, go ahead. Sorry, next
1: up, but just quickly, add, I just saw an article last week. It was from somewhere in, in England and they are talking about, uh, giving, Creating a pill to give to people to make them more compliant.
0: With oh yeah, people. I saw that. It's fu- it's so you go, You're
1: gonna you're gonna get people a pill, and then you see like uh, I saw a thing with the Pfizer CEO talking about they're developing pills that will have an electronic chip in them that will send a signal letting them know when you've taken your pill. So they can create a pill that's gonna make you more docile and compliant. They're gonna link that pill to the grid so that they can get a signal when you take it. So if you don't take your pill, well, we can turn off your money. You know, it's like, I started to interrupt you there, but I wanted to just add that in because all the stuff you're saying, it's like, it's really scary shit that is complete control. And, and people just go, Oh, that's some tinfoil hat theory. It's like, no, man, this is like,
0: yep. Um And I, I just hope that people would wake up by now. Right. All these uh, that pejorative conspiracy theorists has been used to kind of dismiss a lot of, what is publicly known, right? This is all public knowledge. It has been now for decades. They literally write out what they wanna do. They write out their plans and how they're gonna execute them. And um, of course, people don't like to go into the unknown and the uncomfortable, right? And exploring those ideas, exploring that future, it could literally paralyze people. So I understand the hesitancy, but now it's very obvious that this is the case and yes. it, it's time, unless you want to go down that route and you're you're cool being like a digital human cyborg slave to the WEF, oh, okay. right? Like oh. then by all means go ahead. But for go those ahead. that have different plans or or, or, or want to see a different reality for their children or for themselves, even um, you know, it it's time to like actually take heed and and um really pay attention to what's happening and like like what you're doing, Ryan, like reorient every aspect of your life in order to participate as little as possible with their, you know, with their system. But, you know, and so, yeah.
1: Sorry. I just like, I was just like, yeah, like I'm, I'm trying to participate as little as possible in their system. I think we have to sort of build a parallel system to get us through this time. I mean, when everything goes to shit, I'm actually working with some people in my area right now to do just that. We're like creating our own little, uh, organized group to help each other with like having food having you know things we need and and i think um um what was i was just gonna say i forget but yeah the system and, and and like right now what i started doing is like every time i get paid like i immediately convert that into bitcoin like i don't i keep a little out for groceries but it's like i've stopped the other thing too about that i've noticed about my my own uh Mental change when I started getting into Bitcoin is I started looking at every dollar I had as a potential uh, investment for the future in in a real way. Because I I've always Mm. kind of lived by the seat of my pants. I've never really had a big savings. I've been kind of a nomad, and I've always kind of lived a little hand-to-mouth kind of nomadic life. And for the first time, I started going, "Oh well, let me let me not buy any stupid shit because other than like my basic bills and food." I don't need to buy anything. And like every dollar i spend on something re- stupid is a dollar I could have put into Bitcoin. So now I'm like, my mindset's changed where I'm just like, you know, and I, I actually really want to know what you think about all that. Cause I'm like, I'm new and I, you're, you're, you're like, where do you see Bitcoin, like helping or changing our world for a better way or for worse? Yeah.
0: So it's, it's exactly what's happening to you which happens to other people, right? You start saving in Bitcoin. You understand the scarcity. uh, You understand um, the properties of money to a certain extent, and it changes your mindset. You start thinking more for the future as opposed to um, the fiat mindset, which is, you know, um, more of a consumption-based mindset. And it's spend spend the money as fast as you can because if not, it's going to lose value over time. Where with Bitcoin, every purchase you make with Bitcoin, you have to weigh that against it's, potential future value which yes. you know yes and so just that little subtle um switch in you know psychological um processing which occurs um yeah. starts to change the individual you know you start to yeah. you start to think more about what what you find valuable in the world right like yeah. is is this purchase actually worth it to me or should i hold on to this and that's that's the that's the big hope bitcoiners have is that you know We we fix the money, we fix the individual and through that we fix the world. And um, yeah, for me, I think it could be one of the most powerful forces that humanity has ever seen to propagate truth. And from truth, goodness will emerge. Um, And so I'm really focused on keeping the integrity of the network, um, you know, secure, because if not, you know, could you imagine this world without Bitcoin, for instance? Like w- there would be no hope. I mean, you know, they would roll out their central bank digital currency, and yeah, there'd be we'd be relegated to cooperating with one another through barter. And so yeah, at least yeah. with Bitcoin, it gives us an opportunity to connect, to cooperate uh with one another economically, yeah. um, yeah. on a digital level. And so if you're in Canada, I can still send you money here yeah. right um as opposed to if we didn't have bitcoin i would have to use third parties and yeah. uh their systems which they control yeah. and make yeah. it stop you yeah and we'd be totally cut off from each other so there is there is a lot of potential for bitcoin to be a, a powerful force for good even if it's allowing those people who want to live free or want to live a sovereign life the opportunity to do so right mm-hmm. I've also accepted the fact that hey, we might I might not see the world uh you know be fixed. We we might not see yeah, that. But yeah. for those that want to live a free life, who choose to live a free life, it gives them the opportunity to do so. So um yeah, yeah but I, I worry, I worry about complacency. I see how you know with with uh, with you know modern society and the institutions and in our governments, how people have become complacent. They've relied a lot yeah. of their a lot of their thinking has relied on wishful thinking versus actually um, you know, doing the hard things to ensure that the incentive structure is correct, you know, kind of like what we just talked about. And so I think the same thing is is possible for Bitcoin. I think that, you know, we really need to safeguard the monetary principles which uh underline Bitcoin's value proposition because they're gonna come, right? This could be potentially the most powerful force for good. And yeah. they're going to try to attack it. They're going to try to co-opt it. And we need to be aware of that. We can't just say Bitcoin yeah. is inevitable. Bitcoin can't be stopped. Because if the minute we start thinking like that, that's when we open ourselves up. That's when we open up those vulnerabilities yeah. for, for potential uh, co-option. And I think that, you know, it, again, if, if they're successful in doing something like that, then, you know, we're really... We're I don't know if, if something like Bitcoin can be replicated. So yeah. that's that's kind of where I'm at. I don't know if you could jump off of anything there that he said.
1: Well, I, I have a question because I'm curious. Like what what do you see are the threats? Like how can Bitcoin be co-opted by, by bad forces? Like I'm, I'm kind of curious. Like, I, like again, I'm new. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure it out. But like what's – let's say today uh, – blackrock vanguard wef all these players decide hey you know what like we're taking over bitcoin so they just start to buy it all up like what what's the stuff and and in a way it goes up right and i don't know like yeah sure sure i think it's it's it's
0: a a slow it's a just like it's a slow march through the institutions right it's a slow creep into getting their hands on the bitcoin network uh and Again, it doesn't even have to be that they get their hands on the on complete control of the Bitcoin network to pose a formidable threat. And that's my opinion. Right. So like if they get enough mining underneath their control, if they get enough corporations underneath their control and those corporations like Coinbase and Gemini and um, BlockFi and all these centralized custody institutions. Right. Uh, Whether they're exchanges or whether they're other uh, forms. they they're located under the jurisdiction of the, of the U S government. Right. Yeah. And so they hold a lot of Bitcoins and imagine, you know, they attempt a fork and they say, Hey, listen, Bitcoin's fine, but we just got to change some things. You know, we got to make sure that the criminals and the pedophiles that they can't get their hands on, uh, but that, you know, we just limit their use of Bitcoin. And yeah. so through that moral, um, let's just say justification, um, yeah. they add some code that creates a blacklist or something like that into bitcoin and they fork bitcoin to some degree and all the corporations and the miners that are underneath their umbrella go for it and so we essentially get something like um oh. you know like freedom bitcoin versus corporate bitcoin or 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 you know state-sponsored yeah. bitcoin
1: wow i, didn't, I and, didn't know that was technologically possible to do that
0: well, yeah, if you look at the other forks of Bitcoin, I mean, Bitcoin Cash still exists. Bitcoin BSV still exists. But, you know, these are just you know these are to me, they were a bunch of clowns who who wanted to change Bitcoin. And, um, yeah. you, you know, they, they didn't they didn't um, believe in, 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 in the consensus mechanism of, of Bitcoin and therefore wanted and they tried to take over the network. They tried to get the network to kind of switch over to their chain and uh for their chain to be the dominant chain so i'm not you know i don't know how realistic this scenario is all i'm yeah. saying is that bitcoin has experienced forks before i yeah. could see the potential for a, a another fork in the future another takeover attempt and yeah. for there to be formidable um state power behind it which actually you know creates a lot of problems and makes people choose okay what wh- where i'm gonna hold my money and for a lot of people if they have their bitcoin on exchanges and those exchanges cooperate mm. with with the government-backed bitcoin right yeah um you have no choice right they only yeah. recognize your corporate bitcoin and that's why it's so important for people to get their coins off exchanges because yeah. Yeah. you know you you essentially are at their mercy So. Yeah. Um, what do they say? Not your wallet, not your coin. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's all I'm saying is that we need to be vigilant. We need to, we need to really protect the network. And that's why I say, if we can have off grid miners, um, that are independent, um, yeah. and not, not corporatized and don't fall under the ESG, uh, regu- regulatory umbrella, um, that's a big deal. Um, if people run nodes, you know, and the more plebs out there that are running nodes and validating transactions, the better, um, yes. uh, and, and, and things like that. And again, to me, the big one is like, Hey, let's not invite Marxists and socialists who have yeah. different principles, um, than yeah. then, the ethos of Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is very, um, yeah. Like the rules are very constrained, right? Like there's 21 million. Yeah. This is how it is. You're not gonna change it. But what do the Marxists and socialists want to do? They want to co-op. They want to infiltrate, and they want to change, right? In order to fuel their social causes. So why would we invite them in if that's if that's how they operate? Um, yeah. you know, if there's different ways for them to work on their social causes than to be involved in Bitcoin, and we shouldn't yeah. be welcome. I, I I just I don't believe yeah. we should. Once they adopt the Bitcoin ethos, that's a different story, you know.
1: Yeah. What do you think about like certain areas? Like, uh, I know there's like, uh, what is it, Nigeria and like El Salvador, like different countries that are declaring themselves Bitcoin-friendly areas. There's I, I've heard of different states in the U.S. like Arizona, maybe some some senator or somebody recently said, "Hey, we want to make Arizona like a, a Bitcoin state or something." Like, what do you think of that idea? Like people trying to well, even in Florida, didn't the doesn't like didn't the mayor of Miami or some something say like we're gonna we're gonna be Bitcoin friendly? Like, what about that idea? People trying to use it as a way to like get people in to invest.
0: Yeah, I think that's so. I think that's great. And again, um, this is all about secure, like creating a secure network, and the more decentralized it is, the yeah. better, right? Yeah. And so right now, I mean, primarily, I, I would say the U.S. leads the the world in like. Um, bitcoin adoption and bitcoin infrastructure especially now since china kicked all the miners out but yeah. if we got if we got el salvador creating a bitcoin city and running bitcoin miners and we got uh, africa doing that and we got other countries in S- south america and cities and states in the u.s i mean all of that uh you know they're incentivized to secure the network and keep it um and keep the, keep its integrity so yeah. the more the more decentralized these components get the better. Yes. And and yes. the you know the more that that incentive structure really uh you know re- really reinforces the integrity of bitcoin. So yes. yeah, I think yes. I think that's a good idea. I think that Bukele in El Salvador, he's leading the way and you know he's still alive and he's kind yeah. of opening he's opening up the playbook. And yes. so it's interesting to see what's happening. I mean, it's it's the game theory playing out. It's a sovereign individual yes. thesis yes. playing out in real time. So we'll yes. see. It's
1: crazy. I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm here in Canada and without getting into any specifics, like we are making contingency plans about possibly having to flee the country, which is insane. And, I, and I'm looking at, well, where do we go? And like El Salvador is one of the places on my potential list of like where we could go. Uh, you know, uh, Florida would be my first choice, but uh, I think it's a lot harder to to get into the state's. Uh, how do I say this in a way that won't offend too many people? I think it's a lot easier to get into the States if you're coming up from the South and it is coming down from the North mm-hmm. as far as I'm welcomed into the country. Uh, yeah. but you no, know, uh, yeah, I'd be in Florida. I'd be in my car right now, driving to Florida if I could legally do it. Um, it just it's crazy, but yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other topic.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I've met a lot of Canadians who have fled already, um, yeah. With their with their family, a lot of Canadians yeah. moved down to Mexico, Costa Rica, um, yeah. you know, even here in the United States. And they're like, look, w- I mean, we consider ourselves political refugees at this point and uh, we're here and, we're, you know, we're going to figure it out as we go. But we're definitely not going back to Canada, um, yeah. which is wild, you know, which is wild. Um, but wild. again, like, never would have saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, Ryan listen uh this was a great talk man and I really enjoyed it um yeah. I don't know if is there anything else you want to cover real quick before we uh wrap up
1: oh that's good man i think we we this was yeah I really enjoyed this too i it's it's I know we've been kind of talking on via twitter for a, a while now so it's it's uh fun to do this in person and and like I said I've been listening to your show I dig it and I appreciate you having me on i I'm learning a lot about all this bitcoin stuff and I really appreciate uh that so yeah thanks for having me on man i got nothing else to talk about now i mean there's so many things we could get into but that would be a whole other hour and a half so yeah yeah
0: that's what i mean. I, 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 I yeah. things things started slowing down i saw the opportunity to go ahead and wrap it up and uh, yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> because i know and it's funny you know you you can tell a lot about a person uh from twitter from their tweets and and like know yeah. whether you, you're gonna vibe and mesh with them really quickly and so um yeah i you know i I expected a good conversation and that's that's exactly what what it felt like so well,
1: thanks, man. I actually want to thank you because I had my first ever like viral tweet the other day uh-huh it's getting close to 10,000 likes now which I've never had that happen before and it was this and, and and I think I said it to you but when I first tweeted it it was just like it was literally just a random thought that popped into my head when I was having my morning coffee and I just went, oh this is kind of funny tweet like Didn't think anything of it. I Mm -hmm. think you were the first person that morning to like it. Mm -hmm. And And that set it off, huh? Well, that set it off because I think that, you know, you have like, what you're over 10,000 followers now. I think you're by you liking it, it kind of then the algorithm shot it into some of your followers seeing it. That led to a bunch of retweets. I think Zuby saw it because of you. He liked Uh it. So that then set off his followers seeing it. So I'm just sitting there. I come back like an hour later and the things that like, you know, sat like 500, 380 likes or something. I was like, oh my God, that's cool. I wonder if I'll get to 500. Like, that'd be fun. And then next thing I know, it's at like 5,000 and then 9,000. And I'm just like, oh, wow. So anyway. That's
0: it. Uh, so real quick, uh, that's a, that's another thing. that That's a conversation in itself, but it's been interesting. You know, like I, I think I started off 2020 with like 1,500 followers uh, and the inner the interaction that you get at 10,000 followers and yeah, the yeah. the whole psychology of social media really starts to seep in and um, you start to recognize, oh, I I get it. I get why there's a problem because you know, the likes are like little dopamine hits. And when something goes yeah, viral, yeah. it's like really like intense, you know, you, 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 you get all this, you get all these people coming at you and you get all yeah. these responses. And it's, uh it's interesting. I think that like even, you know, there could be a course just on how to deal with uh, social oh, media man. engagement to manage it in some type yeah. of way. Because it, like, like you said, it's just one of those things where w- w- when you get your first viral tweet or, you know, you're just like, whoa, man, there's a lot of energy yeah. behind this. I was just going, this is, this is, this is, this is.
1: Yeah, I did that. Like, we'll talk about this another time. But like, I, I just, like I said, I did a 10 day silent meditation retreat uh, that I just like a uh, two weeks ago. And that was the hardest part for the first three days was I just, I turned my phone off and I didn't turn it on for 10 days. And like, you know, we're so addicted to our phones, those little dopamine hits, uh, <clears throat> being sort of constantly plugged into the Twitter feed. Like, what's the news? I want to know what's happening. I want to know what's happening. And, uh, it made me kind of, it, it was really nice to like unplug and put, I went no technology, no computer, no phone, no, TV, no music for 10 days. Just silence. And it was it was awesome. And I think now I'm sort of committed to doing that once a week. I'm going to have like one day a week where I just don't turn my phone on. I don't turn on music, TV, don't look at my computer and just have a silent day once a week. I think is uh, I think something we could all all probably benefit from. is just absolutely we're so connected all the time. And I don't think it's good for us psychologically.
0: And- yeah yeah no i think that uh learning how to deal with uh social media and all of this it's a a new component to um to our existence right it's like you know before you you worried about the people in your tribe or the people in your community and i mean that's that's the most engagement that you you had and now it's like the whole world can literally be connected to you in, in a moment with social media and like i you know I've had to, I've had to manage that and I've had to deal with stressful situations. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, again, it's like taking the time to self-reflect and process all of that. You need, you need silence. You need, you need to ground yourself. And, you know, that's something that, uh, I saw Zuby does as well. Like he, he just disconnects from Twitter for one day and I, I, you know, you, you saying that idea out loud is making me think that I need to, I need to do that as well. It's, it's, it's all about finding a balance here, you know, yeah. Be- because social media has done a lot of good for me as well. It's allowed me yeah. to network. It's connected Thanks. me to some really cool people, especially growing up, you know, I was probably more intellectual than my friends. Um, I had different ideas, different thoughts. Um, yeah. You know, I just operated a different plane, but I had no one to share that with. Yeah. Uh, and now for the first time, really like interacting with a lot of like-minded individuals it's been it's been an amazing having conversations it's been an amazing thing so there are good qualities about social media but they could also be like pitfalls and so it's just managing those pitfalls which uh yeah i think it's it's a process and we just got to figure that out yeah absolutely cool dude well ryan man thank you so much for coming on i had a great i had a great conversation and uh we'll do it again
1: yeah, we will. I'll get you on my show, and we'll we'll flip it around, and I'll ask you some more questions. So,
0: yeah, that'd be great. Um, so you're you're Ryan Summers on on Twitter. Is there anything else you want to plug?
1: Yeah, Twitter. It's like Ryan underscore Summers underscore S O M E R S. Uh, my website's ryansummers.com. dot com. There's not a lot on there right now, but I'm I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> you know, working on that. And yeah, that's about it. Um, if anyone, uh yeah anything anything interesting anything interesting i'm doing will show up on twitter so that's probably the best Best place
0: all right cool ryan take care
1: thanks man